Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. It's a, we have a wonderful panel that we will have each panelist giving four to five minutes um, short presentation. I will ask a few questions, but we do want to um, open up and have questions from, from the audience. So we will try and keep our talking to a minimum. So I'll just introduce the, the panel. We have Nadia Lopez on the end, um, who's the founder and principal of um, Mott Hill Bridges Academy. I've been reading the book on the plane. It's a really wonderful read and, and inspiring, Nadia. Um, and as a consequence of her work with that school, has been on Ellen, has met Obama, and I think you can, um, you can read her biography. And as with everybody here, I asked them to tell me something that's not in their biography. And Nadia is a typical member of the sandwich generation and that she has a 75-year-old mother and a 17-year-old um, daughter getting ready for, for college and we know all the pressures that have come with that. So it's great that you're here, Nadia. Thank you. Then next to her we have um, Jane Perriman, who's a department head of research at the Institute of Education, University College London, and again you can read her work, her biography, her claim to fame is that she has sung with Barry Manilow um, on three occasions at um, the O2 Arena in, in London. Next to, um, next to her is Sam Sims, author of The Teacher Gap, a book that um, is really picking up um, sales and, and attention in, in the UK. It's a book that really un unpicks some of the, the core issues from a statistical perspective, as well as a nice, lovely, qualitative interviews with people. Sam's interesting fact, and he, he doesn't want to be known as a boring statistician, so he wants people to know that he has a Labrador called Heidi. Um, then next to, next to Sam, we have um, Jana Palajavi, thank you, um, who's, who's the Director of International Relations at the Ministry of Education and Culture of Finland. She wants it known that she comes from the country that has been voted the happiest country in the world for the second time, and it's not necessarily because of the education system, but because most people like Jana were born with skis on. Um, so we have a really interesting panel for you. Look, I think one of the issues, so being at this conference, we have a real sense of how we're amongst people that incredibly value the teaching profession. We, we know about the excitement of being a teacher. We know about the wonderful um, contributions we make to, um, to young people's lives, to the broader, um, broader society. And yet we have trouble in many locations attracting people into the profession. So part of this panel is we want to ask questions about why don't some people want to be teachers? Why is it that some people do stay in the teaching profession for a long time? Um, what do we want to do to keep people in the profession? And how do we um, attract teachers to areas of most need? Because in many locations, the places where it is hardest to attract teachers are where we most need the best teachers possible to work with young people from highly marginalised backgrounds. So I'll, we'll begin with, with Nadia, who will make a few comments about her school, and then move through the panel. 
My school is Montmore Bridges Academy. It's a middle school, so the grades are sixth to eighth grade. Typically, the scholars will start at the age of 11. Um, but because we're in one of the highest needs, high impoverished, um, high crime areas, I can have scholars all the way until 16 years old. Um, it is very hard to find teachers to want to work in a community that where only 32% of children graduate from high school. Um, and the average income is only $11,000. So a typical scholar who comes into my building just alone this year for sixth grade, only seven out of 81 children were able to read on grade level. Majority are on a first or second grade level. But by the time they leave us in eighth grade, they have to be prepared for high school. So one of the challenges is finding educators who can appreciate, adapt to the complexities of the beautiful challenges that I say is in Brownsville and be able to see the potential in children and don't see it as it is their fault, but someone did a disservice and it is our responsibility and calling to do what is right. Um, so my school has become what you would say a beacon of hope because of my high expectations. I am there to support my teachers. I still stay in the classroom, so I don't speak from a place of just observing, but actually practicing um, and making sure I'm the example first before I ask anyone in my building to do the work. Oh, that's <laughs> um, hi, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, a recent project I did on teacher retention within my own university. Um, I conducted a survey of the last five years of our teacher trainer al alumni, and uh, we cover various routes into teacher training, employment-based routes, university-based routes, etc. We had 1,200 responses to, to the research, so I feel quite confident that I can talk uh, knowledge, knowledgeably about what um, our graduates think, although I don't deal in enormous statistical sets, which you're going to hear from Sam later. Um, we asked them what motivated them to become teachers in the first place, and we asked them to reflect on what they had thought the rewards and challenges would be of being teachers. And then most importantly of all, we asked, were they still in teaching? Those who had left, we asked why they had left. And those who stayed, we asked what possible reasons might cause them to leave in the future, or if they saw it as a long-term thing. Um, around 18% of our cohort had left. Um, and I say within the first five years, but obviously we were surveying people who had only just started. Um, and that's slightly lower than, than national statistics. Um, but when we asked people how long they were likely to stay, we predicted that over a five to ten year period, we would have around a 40% attrition rate, which is very much in line with other countries um, who exist within what I call a high-stakes accountability regime. They went into teaching for all the reasons that, that have inspired us so much here. They wanted to make a difference, they wanted to work with children, they wanted to share their passion and their love for their subjects. They were, they said, aware of the workload. Many of them were actually worried more about behavior management, but actually the reality of teaching, they thought there wasn't really anything to worry about there as long as they were supported. 
So when we asked people why they had left, workload and work-life balance came on top. And we wondered why, having been aware of the workload issues, they were still the issues that led people to, to leave. Um, and the answer was in the other reasons they picked, the highest of which were the target-driven culture and constantly changing government initiatives. People talked about doing the job of teaching being about performative tasks which were about box ticking and were not for the good of the people they were teaching and also took them away from the more creative aspects of what they'd gone into teaching for. Um, and I think that's probably a good moment to, to go on to you. Thanks. Um, so I think the evidence points to a couple of uh, sort of big determinants of retention. What Jane's talked about is definitely one, and the sort of uh, culture of management by numbers, which has grown in education. But I want to talk about something else, which is pay. Uh, almost everybody I meet in education um, makes the case to me that pay is not actually a big deal for teachers. You know, we know teachers are mission-driven individuals. Um, but actually, I think the evidence is in tension with that in places. And um, perhaps I'm being slightly uh, controversial on purpose here. Uh, so just a bit of context for those of you who don't know uh, the UK and England. Uh, we've had falling teacher retention since 2010. Uh, it's declined most amongst early career teachers. Those are the ones we're struggling to keep. It's worse in STEM subjects at secondary than uh, in arts and humanities subjects. And it's worse in the secondary phase, pupils between the ages of 11 and 16, than it is at the primary phase. And I think a good explanation of what's going on with teacher retention should be able to account in some way for these facts that we see in the data. It's important to think about teaching in long-run context as well. You know, in the middle of the uh, 20th century, teaching was a relatively very high-paid public sector profession. So in the 1970s, for example, uh, men with qualified teacher status uh, in England earned uh, more if they had a teaching job than men with the same qualifications who, for whatever reason, had decided not to go into teaching. The gap was the same for women, but actually even larger. By the sort of turn of the century, 90s, 2000s, that position had reversed completely for men. So, you know, men with teaching qualifications would now earn more outside teaching than inside teaching on average. And we'd almost reach sort of parity between those two pay levels for women. And the World Bank have a really nice study where they show across 32 countries, or World Bank data, sorry, uh, that as a country gets richer, um, this kind of gap between public sector pay, the public sector pay premium, and private sector pay tends to sort of erode. And it's quite easy to understand why, right? As a, com as a country uh, economy grows, there are more kind of high-skill, high-pay employment opportunities. So in the UK, we've had a big increase in, for example, banking. Uh, life sciences, jobs like this that previously weren't available. And this has been exacerbated by um, a decade of austerity and uh, pretty severe public sector pay freezes that have seen teachers' pay falling behind uh, or rising more slowly than other pay in other sectors. It also crucially varies by subject. Um, so the, if you look at the kind of average pay by degree subject in England, uh, you make the most money, essentially, if you do law, economics, or medicine. We don't teach any of those subjects at secondary in England, so we're not kind of trying to uh, you know, attract those sort of graduates. The next highest paid is STEM. We do teach these subjects, science, engineering, maths, um, and that's where we have the shortage. 
Arts and Humanities graduates paid less on average. We don't really have a shortage of Arts and Humanities graduates. And um, the size of these gaps are quite big in England. You know, the average physicist or somebody with a physics degree gets paid £6,500 more per year on average than the person with a physics degree who teaches. You know, if you multiply that by 40, the length of a career, it's a quarter of a million pounds. You know, the Varkey Teacher Prize is worth 750,000 English pounds. We're asking physicists to forego a kind of third of the value of the Varkey Teacher Prize in order to go into a, a career-long job as a physics teacher. So we're asking people to make, you know, in some sense, um, large sacrifices. And just finally, you can also explain with pay this difference that I pointed out between uh, primary and secondary uh, teacher retention rates, because around a fifth of secondary teachers in England have a STEM degree uh, with high outside earnings potential, whereas at primary school it's more like one in 20. Um, so I think I'll leave it there. And um, just emphasize that none of this means that I don't agree that teachers go into teaching for mission-driven reasons. I 100% believe that. My argument is just about, is pay important for keeping them in the profession once they arrive? And I would argue that the evidence supports that quite strongly. Thank you, um, thank you for the interesting contributions so far. So, uh, I said, I'm, I'm Jan, I'm coming from Finland, and it seems that I'm the only one in the panel representing the government side. <laughs> and that's probably why they chose Finland, because Finland is rather exceptional in, in that sense. Uh, there's no teacher shortage in Finland, actually, to start with. Uh, and we are making quite a big exception with many, even many, with among very many European countries in that, that sense. The status of teachers is very high in Finland. Teachers are highly respected. It's a very val uh, highly valued profession. Uh, and also teacher satisfaction, according to OECD tallies, is very, very high in Finland, one of the highest in the world. So it's considered to be an attractive profession. People stay in the profession, and also we are able to kind of attract young students to choose teaching profession, although it's very difficult actually to become a teacher in Finland. We have all teacher education is given in the universities, and only approximately, on average, only one out of 10 of applicants to the teachers, to pedagogical faculties, get in. So we get the best 10% of the students who want to become a teacher. So um, probably our next question is why, how and why, and, and, and how on earth this is possible. Uh, I'm giving you kind of four very brief explanations. I'm not willing to take much of your time. Uh, sorry, Sam, start with money. In, in Finland, the money is, money is not an issue, actually. So the Finnish teachers are paid, they are averagely paid in, in the Finnish scale, if you look at the, the Finnish wages. If you look at the EU statistics, we are right in the middle. And if you look at OECD statistics, once again, we are right in the middle. But I think the message, which is rather important when we are speaking in the, in the global conference, is that teachers should have a decent pay. They should have a pay which is sufficient to make a living. And that's not the case in every country in the world. We know that painfully, painfully well. But in a case, it's not seen as an attraction. And especially what comes to the, and now I'm coming to my second point, what comes to the younger generation, there are clear indicator, indications in Finland and with other professions as well that money is not anymore the attraction for the younger generation. They want independence, they want possibilities to use their capacities in the work, they want to have freedom in their work, and there are different 
kind of a different things which they value. It's not money, it's not enough. And that is what teachers' profession in Finland is pretty much for. So there's a great autonomy. Uh, teachers are very, very free to choose the methods in the classroom, choose the material in the classroom. Education is good. Every Finnish teacher has a master's degree. So once you have had a good academic education, research-based plus practical studies throughout your, throughout your studies, and you are able to use your abilities in the work. So that, that's probably one catch. Uh, third point, very briefly, is that uh, maybe it's good to explain that uh, we Finns, we are a weird combination of being extremely rational on one side and thinking out of the box on the other side. And we have been thinking out of the box in our education system. And that's what differs us from the, let's say, other high-performing countries in the world. If you look at, compare us, for instance, to the Asian tigers, Singapore, Korea, and the others. There's a great extent of rationality in those countries in developing education system. But this kind of thinking out of the box and doing something very, very differently and, and doing something bizarre, that's, that's something which we do in Finland. And that's why we get so many delegations from Asian countries, actually, to think why we do and why on earth we are doing it. So if I just give you some teasers, because they have the impact on teaching profession as well. So um, about 20 years ago, we posed a question that do we really need school inspectors? The answer was no. Not really. So we gave up. There are no school inspectors in Finland. Haven't been since early 90s. Uh, can we give the teachers liberty to use whatever material they wish to? Okay, why not if they are well educated? If we have able to kind of create, we have been able to create a good capacity, so why not? They are able, absolutely able to do it. Do we want to have standardized testing in school? Or, or, or does standardized testing really support learning in the classroom for individuals? The answer is no. No, actually there's no reason of doing standardized testing. So there's no standardized testing in Finland either. So very many examples in, in Finland, but we like to think differently. And my last point, very briefly, is that I guess one of the reasons why teaching profession is so attractive in Finland is that we really want teachers, well-educated teachers, to be engaged in the system not any lip service, but really engaged. So for instance, teachers are participating to the curricula, crafting the curricula at the end of the day, at the school level. We are just giving core curricula nationwide. And they are able to kind of develop their own work in the classroom. They are responsible how they want to assess and evaluate the pupils. They can do it as they wish. So a lot of liberties and a lot of really engagement and possibilities and doors open for engagements on the school level and in their own work. And as a government, uh, uh, we are not so great friends of, of having control and steering. We rather are, consider us to uh, be the ones who should create trust in the society. Trust that teachers are doing their job. Trust that everybody in the system is doing their job. And that's very Nordic system, very Nordic concept, I would say. But, but this is something which we are for. Thank you. Thanks, Jana. I'm <laughs> I'm very cognizant that lots of people in the audience will have questions for the, the panel, but I'm in kind of an enviable position in that I'm here and I can ask them um, each a question. So I might do that first and then open it up to, to the, the panel. Nadia, I just wondered, 
when you're sitting and listening to the other panel speakers, how that resonates with your thoughts in terms of employing teachers in your schools, either across different mm -hmm. curriculum areas, differential pay, trust issues for teachers? Um, so I, I, I want to be honest, I'm, I'm that student in the room, so I'm <laughs> taking down notes because it is a lot of information yeah. and um, I want to be clear and transparent. Can I do that with you all? Yeah. yeah? Um, teachers want to be valued. Teachers want to be respected. Teachers want to be heard. And we're not part of the conversation. Quite honestly, I, I did a book, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and, and the section that I did, I do reference Finland. And one of the things that I recognize about the, the environment of teaching is, one, it does come with respect, a high level of standard of excellence that starts from the colleges and university. You get the top percentage of students to work in your school, so, in your school. so there's already an expectation that you're getting the best, right? The most passionate, they're gonna be paid accordingly, um, as well as the students get personalized learning. Um, you also have an appreciation. There's a culture that says teachers are valued. Um, as I was listening as well, I'm hearing the idea of possibility. I come from the US. Every state governs differently. How much a teacher makes in New York is considerably different from how much a teacher makes in another state. My teachers don't have to work two or three jobs to maintain their households. I make sure that if my teachers stay a, a minute after school, I pay them the overtime that they deserve because I never want anyone to sacrifice having to be in school for the betterment of their own household. Um, but what I don't hear as a collective is how do we tie the research with making sure government understands, and not so much Finland, but if we take the research, you're taking the voice of the teachers, but the teachers directly are not being asked by the government, but we use this research to then say, this is what's happening in the classroom. It's real simple, ask a teacher what's wrong, why don't I want to stay in the school? Teachers who decide to teach do it because they're passionate, and we understand it's a service, we, we understand it is a calling, right? The teachers who taught me made about 26, $27,000 a year, right? That was the early 80s. My teachers aren't making that much. However, the reasons why they wouldn't want to stay, they stay with me is because I fight. I am willing to disrupt the system. I know that there is a standardized test. It's unfair to children. I do not allow the big businesses, which are the textbook companies, to delegate what's going to happen in my building. I want my teachers to be passionate and creative. I want them to know their children. I want them to teach to the children's needs, not to the textbook, not to an exam that changes every two years because we have a new contract. That's not what teaching is about. But you have teachers who are being evaluated. You have teachers who feel like, I come to work just to try to make it through so no one says that I was ineffective because I didn't follow the letter of the law. And it is unfair that when we look at the data and we talk about teacher retention, we're not just being honest and going into the schools. Policymakers never show up into our schools to understand what we're going through. Every child is different. So we want them to understand humanity. We want them to teachers to be em, um, empathetic. We want them to be compassionate. We want them to teach the children to be the same way, 
but we don't treat our teachers the same way. So when we talk about retention, we need to talk about you're dealing with the human life first before you're dealing with the data. And that's something that we need to you know, address. I keep my teachers because I understand my teachers. Those who don't stay is because they're not willing to conform to the understanding that we have children whose lives we are saving. And you do not get to earn a check that is not gonna allow a child to have a better life, period. Thanks, Nadia. Jane, I know that some of this will be music to your ears from your views on accountability, but what would you say to people who say teachers still and schools still need to be held to account? Mm -hmm. They still need to be accountable to the young people in the communities. What would you say to somebody I, that asked you that question? Yes, here? I mean, nobody is arguing that there doesn't need to be some form of accountability in education because we owe it to those that we teach that we are doing the best for them. But we've just heard from an incredibly passionate head teacher who is dealing with how things are in her school. And if we trust school leaders, then the accountability should be to them. And if we then also I'm, I'm loving the, ability, the, the um, abolishing inspection idea, um, and I shall argue for that vociferously. But if we operate in a, in a high-trust, low-accountability system, as opposed to what we have in England, which is a low-trust, high-accountability system, then that is, is better for, for attention. Thanks, Jane. So, Sam, and I hope I don't misrepresent you. So, you said controversially you were going to talk about pay, and I think everybody here agrees that teachers need to be well paid and appropriately paid. But you gave examples of how people from STEM could be earning more elsewhere. Would you suggest that people from different curriculum areas were paid differently or were re rewarded differently? Uh, and, and if so, what might that do to a school community where you have teachers paid at different rates? Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a school governor in a primary school in Haringey, and one of the things I've learned from the years of uh, doing it's a voluntary position that we have in England to help with the governance of a school. Um, uh, one of the things I've learned um, through observing that school close up is the incredible sort of sense of esprit de corps among the staff and the sort of solidarity that they're all pushing to achieve one thing. And so I think it would be problematic, for example, to introduce you know, one national pay scale for science teachers and one national pay scale for history teachers. You know, I think, I think this is not, uh, it doesn't fit the ethic that uh, makes schools function uh, really well. Um, there are, however, things I think you can do um, around the edges uh, to sort of balance up pay in terms of balance with outside earnings opportunities. And something the, the uh, UK government is currently exploring for England is to pay kind of one-off um, almost retention bonuses to teachers in shortage subjects. Uh, and so that would be, in effect, STEM subjects, MFL, things like that. And modern doing foreign it, languages. Yeah, modern yeah. foreign languages, yeah. thank you. Uh, and doing it this way uh, stops there being this kind of obvious difference uh, between teachers. It takes it out of the hands of head teachers who are often very reluctant to start sort of, you know, favouring some staff over others. Um, 
And also, it, you know, we know from careful studies that early career teachers are much more sensitive, their decisions to stay in the profession or not, are much more sensitive to pay than later career teachers. So by designing it in this way, where central government gives a one-off sort of bonus payment if you stay in a school to early career teachers. In particular subject areas. In particular subject areas. I think you can sort of, there's a nice trade-off that that achieves between ensuring actually that pupils get access to appropriately qualified teachers in these subjects and not, I would hope, sort of destroying the morale of staff. And just, just to put one final point, the choice I think we face in England is between paying all teachers uh, you know, of similar experience levels and phases the same amount of money and having almost uh, a sort of uh, if not permanent, sort of cyclical, recurring shortage of science and maths teachers. It will come back and it will come back and it will come back. And it's the disadvantaged pupils who miss out. You can see that in the data. Or paying them slightly different amounts of money, and I'm talking about maybe 5% difference between subjects, and, though, and all pupils having access to an appropriately qualified teacher. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, and I... I think I was telling you before we came in, I used to do a lot of work with a State Department of Education in Australia and there was this story doing the rounds amongst staff members within the department that the Director General had banned the use of one word in the department. People were never to mention the word Finland because they were tired of keep hearing how wonderful Finland is. Um, and I wondered, you know, so whether there is pressure on Finland to always be a bit ahead of the game and what that means in relation to the teacher retention issue. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. Finland is not a very competitive nation as such. <laughs> and that, that, that's something which is very, very fundamental basis also in our education system because we rather, we don't think education system is, is kind of a competition, not among students or nor among anybody in the system, but we are rather for stressing equity and, and, and trying to support the weaker ones. However, um, I guess there is a challenge which every government in the world, I guess, is facing today. And it is that, that what's happening around us, I mean, digital development, artificial intelligence, immigration, global change, just uh, global climate change. So how would that change teaching profession? And we are trying desperately to find answers for that. And it's, it's very painful for me to admit that if, if, we, if you're asking me what will be the Finnish education system and challenges in the education system in uh, 30 years' time, I would say that I, I really don't know. I honestly don't know. And how you can navigate to the unforeseen future, how you can develop a teacher uh, qualifications and, and competencies in a world where you really don't know what is needed. We are speaking a lot of soft skills and I would like to come back what Nadia said that uh, teaching professional teachers are dealing with human life. Mm -hmm. And this is pretty much what is left, whether we are speaking about technological development or, or, or uh, artificial intelligence. So teachers are dealing with human life and soft skills. And that is something which we are in Finland, actually, we are kind of taking as a basis of our strategy. So what does this really mean in the future? Thank you. Thanks, Tom. 
So we have opportunity for questions from the floor for about 15 minutes. I think there might be some microphones going around. So can I just, <coughs> there was a question here and then here. So if you could use the microphone so people at the back can hear. Thanks. Just here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm a teacher from Vancouver, Canada. I'm a music teacher. And I want to understand something if I've misheard. I'm just wondering if you meant to assign disparate value to the work that teachers do in different curricular areas. And I'm wondering what problem that solves. Because I, as a music teacher, in the course of uh, a 60 or an 80 minute class, I will teach students about history, geography, uh, physics, biology, uh, physical education. I, I can keep going through the list of things that I would be teaching students, in which case perhaps as an extension of your argument, then I would deserve eight times the pay of any other teacher in the school. <laughs> and I'm certain that's not what you meant. So I'm wondering if you could just clarify how it is that certain subject areas would warrant teachers being paid more versus others being paid less. Uh, first okay. of all, thank you for your hard work as a music teacher. <laughs> no, I really mean that. Um, and uh, your questions were, do I assign different value to different curricular areas? Absolutely not. I do not. And what do I think it would achieve to pay teachers different amounts? I think it would achieve giving all pupils, including disadvantaged pupils in England, access to an appropriately qualified science and maths teacher. Um, so, so that's the extent of my argument. I'm not making claims about the value of different subjects or anything like that. You know, as far as I'm concerned, music is one of the best things about being alive, and I'm glad there are music teachers passing that on to the next generation. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, hi, Jolene. Uh, I'm a journalist and also formerly university um, instructor. And we've talked a lot about, or you've talked a lot about teacher pay and so on. What we, we haven't spoken a lot about is the school funding itself. I know Nadia in particular talked a lot about how textbooks and curriculum sort of changes at the whims of these private corporations um, who may up the price of a book or you know whatever reasons there. Um, and also in particular, the class size in Finland. It's not something I'm particularly familiar with and how that relates to funding or maybe the success of, of your schools. So what, um, I'm clear on the question. So it's, but it's a question not about school funding and then how that relates to class size and other things that may be impacting classrooms and, and teacher, um, whether or not teachers choose to stay, yeah. I guess. So, so maybe Nada and Jan okay. want to say yeah. something so, about that. Um, our pay is not based off of um, how, 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 how many bodies we have in the school doesn't impact so much the pay. It impacts how many teachers I can have in my building. Um, so we get per capita, let's say $4,500 a child. If my enrollment is less, then I have to lose a teacher, which then means that that's gonna require someone else to have to take up that work, um, which oftentimes, because I don't want my teachers to be burnt out and feel overwhelmed, I'll take on class loads. Um, but in terms of how I manage my budget, Primarily, I make sure that my teaching staff is in place first. I make sure that there is appropriate funding for whatever curriculum they need, um, as well as additional funding um, for after-school activities. We, I place the value into the teachers first before anything else gets done in the building. Um, but to a point that I wanted to just add, when, when they were talking about the differences between pay, one of the things that um, 
they have tr they've tried to do in New York right now is look at the different communities. Higher need areas have a lower amount of qualified teachers. We, have, we tend to have teachers who come from alternative programs. Um, I can speak to it because I went through an alternative program. Um, the teachers, I feel, are not as fully prepared to walk into a building. When I got through it, I initially was not selected. I was told initially that I would not be able to handle the rigor of the program, right? But it required someone, a superintendent, who had taught me, who was my assistant principal, to make a phone call and want to know specifically why that was. And so I got a phone call that said, yeah, so we made a mistake, right? But then I saw teachers who came into the program who didn't last through the summer because they didn't realize how much work it would require to deal with certain children. So when a teacher who has to come to my building has to understand that 32% of my children have special needs, we have a high number of children who are coming in either from foster care or temporary housing, so that means they live in shelters. They could be with us today and move somewhere else in New York City and not be with us tomorrow. Um, as well as children who are English language learners. For some of them, it may seem like I could go to another school district and make the same amount of money and have more of a, a demographic where children are on grade level and I don't have to deal with all of the issues of classroom management. Um, so in that case, to retain teachers, it may seem like a better fit to say, we will give you additional just because it's harder to staff as opposed to it's based off of your license area. Thanks. Thank you. Um, if I start with class size, so um, average is always misleading, especially when, when we're speaking <laughs> of my country. So uh, on average in uh, uh, basic education from classes one to six, where we have classroom teachers teaching practically all the subjects in the classroom, it's uh, between 18 and 22, depending on the grade where you are. However, um, uh, when we come to a subject, it can vary. It, it varies from 8 to 25, 30. And sometimes it happens that, uh, I'm not quite sure whether we ask about class size or, or how many teachers we are having in a classroom, because we can have easily 30 kids at the classroom, but two teachers teaching them at the same time. I mean, guiding for the group work and, and so on and so forth. So yes and no. And if I may say a couple of words of school funding as well. So in, in Finland, we have, once again, we are rather exceptional. So all Finnish schools are public or enjoying public funding. So education is free of charge for every child in Finland. So about 2% of Finnish schools are private, but they are subsidized by, by the government. So normally the parents don't even know whether the school is private or public, where the child is in, because you really cannot see the difference. They are choosing the school next door or the school which is offering proper language selection or, or some specialization which they wish to. Thanks, Jana. Mm -hmm. So there's a question mm -hmm. over here, I think. Yeah. Hello, my name is Emma Russo and I am a teacher in London. Uh, I just wondered, so on the question about, in the discussion about pay, um, it seems impossible to me not to discuss the pay gap, which um, in England at least has been highlighted uh, by gender pay auditing. And there is an astonishing gap uh, for a female-dominated profession between uh, men and women, especially in the academy system, which has kind of been allowed to flourish. And I guess I wondered if you knew of any systems or examples of places that have been in a similar situation and action that has been taken 
because if we're talking about teacher retention, we've got a system full of talented, capable women who are not being promoted and rewarded uh, you know, to be outstanding, trusted school leaders like you've, you know, you've got Nadia in front of you. Hmm. Did somebody want to take up that question? Uh, so to provide context, in the UK we now have um, a requirement that organisations publish their gender pay gap data in a standardised form, which has been helpful certainly in sort of having a, uh, provoking a debate and informing a debate about this. Um, academy schools are autonomous schools, uh, and one of the things they have more autonomy over is the way they set pay or they did for some time. Um, and uh, school chains such as ARC, as ARC uh, which is a large multi-academy trust, um, have been very transparent about publishing their data and sort of interrogating their own data to see where the, uh, the gender pay gap comes from. I'm sure other, other multi-academy trusts have done the same. <laughs> uh, I think what they find, uh, in ARC at least, which is the data I've looked at closely, is that this partly reflects a problem with progression, you know, the, the pay gap reflects both a problem with progression to senior levels and a higher proportion of women in low paid, uh, lower paid, uh, sort of non-educational roles in schools, what's sometimes called support staff. Um, so I think, you know, I agree, we need, to, we need to let everybody with the potential to be a great school leader become a school leader. Um, and I think we're doing a pretty good job on that around the, you know, the uh, qualifications for headship and so on. Um, but I, I suppose the only thing I would add to that is that, in part, this reflects not just a pay gap at the top, but actually a pay gap at the very bottom uh, for so-called support staff in schools who you know, make a critical contribution to the life and success of schools. I would just add to that. I just examined a, a PhD thesis about male teachers in primary schools and there was a significant group of, not all of them, but a significant group of them who went into primary because they saw they could move into headship quite quickly as a way of doing that. So I think that's part of that gen, gender pay gap as well. Yeah. Sorry, there was a, yeah. Hello, my name is Justyna and I'm a journalist from Poland. Uh, actually, two weeks from now, we are going to have the biggest teacher strike in the history of Poland. Half million of teachers are going to stop their work, includes uh, final exams. Uh, it's all, almost uh, all about salaries, of course, but it's crisis we can't stop right now. Do you have any advices how to manage that after that crisis? Because, <laughs> yeah, I know it's yeah, tough yeah. one. And you don't have the money for that. <laughs> Sounds like a policy question. Well, uh, yes, yes, that was pretty Yeah, much we always want to be less, as Finland. Yeah, so. I, I was very much afraid of that. <laughs> so uh, what, uh, what comes to the, uh, it's, it's a very difficult question, what to do after strike. We have had strikes in Finland as well, but um, we have tried to manage our situation with the teacher union so that uh, we are integrating them and engaging them to all reforms in education. So we are giving them the floor to say what they are, to, to speak out their, their views. And of course, sometimes we don't agree, but it helps a lot if, you, if they feel kind of a, they are part of the process and if you can kind of a compromise in some extent so to get them committed, at least partially committed to the processes. So that, that would have been rather helpful in, in Finland and in the case of Finland. But I know that the, our, our example is probably not the best possible one because I would say that our relation with the teacher union is, is quite constructive. 
and that's quite, I'm not, not sure whether that's reason or result, but, but still. I mean, mm. Hi, uh, this is for the lady from Finland, again. Um, what is the minimum standard of the teachers who come into the entry level? Is it uh, a degree? Do you have a level that you can explain to us a little bit? Uh, question number two, <clears throat> where does the high trust, low accountability start from? Does it start in the universities? Is it the way you train your teachers? Is it a mindset? I mean, how do you train your head teachers? Where, does it, where, did, where did it start from and how do you continue on that? And last, um, if you're not big on assessment and examinations, then how do you have an entry level in universities? Or do you want to tell us that everybody in Finland can just walk in a university? Mm -hmm. I no. mean, you must have something mm -hmm. to have a criteria at some point or the mm -hmm. other. Thank yes. you. Thank you. So um, if I start from the end. So we do have entry tests to the universities, but they are up to the universities, and they are profiling, actually, the test, admission tests differently. So in teacher, teacher training, uh, most of the universities are cooperating in Finland so that they are rather unified, but, but still. Uh, uh, part of the teacher training is, 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 of course, that we are, we see, see that the Finnish education system is kind of a package. We have good teachers and capacity building of teachers, and I mean not only initial training, but also retraining and continuous training of teachers. But it's also very closely linked to the changes we are making in the content of studies. I mean, the curricula and curriculum development and the implementation of curricula. And that's pretty much what is already created in education. So that's uh, kind of a creating trust is kind of a making people believe that they can make the difference in their own work. And that, that kind of a confidence building we are at least trying to start already in the teacher training. Uh, but I have to, have to kind of uh, tell also that uh, there was a survey about a year ago that which European Union countries, that was made only in Europe, where people do trust their countrymen most. I mean, if you ask that, uh, are you trusting the fellow in the street? And Finland was on the top of that. So there is kind of a trust within the society that people are kind of um, relying on the system and relying that the Finland functions. Um, head teachers in, in Finland and or, or, or principals are always having teacher background. So they are, it's kind of a career development for the teachers that they are kind of a, having opportunities to, to become, become as a teacher. And I said uh, the only requirement for, for teachers to be competent in Finland, to act as a teacher, is that they do have a master's degree from grade one to six in pedagogics. If they are teaching subjects from grade seven onwards, they must have master's degree in a subject or subjects they are teaching, plus one year, approximately one year, additional pedagogical studies. So I don't sure if I <coughs> Yes, subject teachers on the top of the master's degree in the subject, let's say mathematics, they have to do uh, it's not exactly one year, but approximately one year pedagogical studies. You can do it parallel with your master's degree if you know already that you will act as a teacher or afterwards. So thank you. Uh, okay, one very quick question. And, yep. uh, this, is, this is related to uh, salary, uh, teacher retention <coughs> issues. Uh, I do understand that uh, 
uh, people in Finland or in the UK or in the United States working in a teaching, teaching profession, they are teachers from the United States or from the UK or from Finland. Teachers in this part of the world, I'm talking the UAE, the GCC, or expat communities where teachers are mainly non-locals. Mm. Uh, so, so money-related uh, teacher retention issues become paramount. Mm. Uh, how do you suggest uh, to manage that, given in mind that uh, one of the main drivers for, for a teacher to leave his or her uh, home country to work abroad is the finances. I leave the floor to any of the panelists. Mm. A 30 second response from... So, sorry, can I just clarify, is your question uh, that you, you find that pay in this context is important but it's a struggle but, you know, in budget terms to address I mean, that? Or? The reason why somebody leaves his or her home country to work yeah. abroad is financial. Yes. Okay, right. So the retention the, the pay-related retention issues become paramount in this, right. mm. in this yep. context. Okay, yeah, my, so my 30-second answer is... 15 now. Oh, there's, a, there's a really good study in Texas in the 2000s <laughs> where they look at how sensitive teachers are to pay in different parts of their career. And basically, the earlier you are in the career, the more sensitive you are to pay in terms of making that stay-leave decision. Uh, and so a sensible thing for countries to do is just flatten the pay gradient in the early career, right? put the pay where you get the biggest sort of retention bang for the buck. Um, by the way, in Finland, uh, beginning teachers are paid $11,000 more than, than teachers in the UK. So I think you guys have got it right. Okay, thanks. Look, thanks for coming to this session. I'm sure there's many more questions. I know I've got loads of questions I would like to ask the panel. But thank you so much for a really engaging and thought-provoking um, discussion. And thanks to the audience as well. So thank you. Thank you.